Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. You're up up in... uh... Up in Davis, aren't you? Or somewhere up there, aren't you? Up in uh, Northern California, yeah, I'm somewhere. Yeah, in Davis right now. I was in Tulare County last year, because that's where all the large dairy farms are. But I'm but I'm in Davis right now, and I'm taking classes for a for like a postdoctoral master's. You're our our second guest from UC Davis. We had uh, Professor Frank Benloner on a couple times actually. So uh, sure. Yeah. You guys seem to have have all the fun guests. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't think I'm anywhere near as. <laughs> have you have you met have you, have you met Frank Midloner? Have you? Have, oh, I don't know him. He's um he's like the animal science department. I'm with the vet school. Gotcha. But I've I've heard a lot about him. He's quite. <laughs> he's pretty popular on campus. Everybody talks about his work. Yeah, he's pretty prolific in, in, from what I can understand. So, but tell us, so you're, I mean, obviously you're originally from Ireland, but you are a licensed veterinarian. And I know you said you did a lot of work with large animals, specifically dairy cattle. And yep. now you're doing some advanced, you know, advanced training beyond that. What are you, what are you studying right now? So I graduated from vet school in Ireland in 2016. And then I worked there for a year in livestock practice. But like my focus was dairy because I grew up on dairy farms. And then I applied for a residency at UC Davis when I was in practice in Ireland. And I got accepted into that in 2017. And it's a three-year clinical residency, but, and I'm halfway, well, I'm more than halfway through it, but, um, and it's like making me eligible for boards to become a specialist in dairy practice. So I'm not a specialist yet, but I'm like on that route. Um, But the second year, the program, the residency program that I'm in, um, has a big research focus because that's a big part of the agricultural industry. So it has the second year open to take classes in this master's called the MPVM. It's a master's of preventative veterinary medicine. So that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm in my last quarter of that. And, um, and I'm also writing up a research paper and finishing off a trial I ran because that's part of my residency requirement to get all that stuff pumped out. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know. In the, I didn't know in the because uh, in the U.S. medical system, you know, you have people that are fully physicians in their own country, and then they come to the U.S. and they have to go through the U.S. specialized training. But back in Ireland, you were you were you you could practice as a vet uh, without any further further stuff. Is that correct, or or you you still have to finish residency in Ireland? No, um, and it's kind of similar here in veterinary. You can you're eligible to get a license and practice privately in veterinary medicine like straight out of school but for certain positions you wouldn't be eligible without a residency but yeah like you said straight out of school I was eligible to start working as a as a veterinarian privately and I guess the reason why I'm able to work in this country or get I was able to get a license in this country is because the school I went to in Dublin is accredited by the American Association of Vet Med which is a big I suppose bonus for that school because there's only a couple of schools in the world that are recognized like that so that made it a lot easier for me to jump over here. And hey, start. What, 
and get Patrick, Patrick, what what drove you to want to go become a vet? Just was there something like childhood wise? What 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 made you decide to do this? Um, well, I grew up around dairies and on dairies, but my parents didn't inherit a dairy. Their older siblings did, and I guess I realized as I was growing up then that I realized that I wasn't in line to inherit any of that <laughs> or get a farm without any serious. I guess I'm um, loan taking or whatever. So I had to come up with an alternative and I went to vet school so I could do the next best thing. <laughs> and that's pretty much, you know, I kind of grew up with it. So I, I didn't really have any al other alternatives. Tell us a little bit about the day-to-day, -day, like a day-to-day -day operations for, for a, a vet like yourself who would do, do dairy cattle. I mean, what, what, is, what, what would it be like in, in both Ireland and, and then here in the U.S.? Okay. So Ireland, it's ag set up is very different to here and california is a very polarized example compared to ireland because california in its livestock ag and its crop-based ag is you know kind of on the cutting edge it is like you know i'm sure living in california the agriculture here is leading in the world in terms of productivity and like even the way it's managed right down to absolutely every you know the way everybody manages everything so in ireland it's still much more um it's a more old fashioned system in a lot of ways. People are improving and, you know, people are, there's a lot of movements to, you know, modernize management practices and bring on a lot of things. But um, in terms of the vets interaction with their clients there, it's very different to California. And there's parts of the US that will be much more similar to the way it was in Ireland for me. But um, our client interaction was very ambulatory and very kind of like one-on-one -on -one with a client and their sick animal. You know, they would call in, or you would have scheduled visits maybe for some like reproductive checks, you know, like pregnancy checking or um, like a health check. But like the main, the bulk of my workload was ambulatory calls. So people ringing in like this calf is sick. This cow is sick. This cow wasn't eating. I don't know what's going on. Or I have a dystocia. We need you to come out and assist with it. So you, so your timetable was very wild because, you know, cows don't calve when you tell them to us. So, you know, you could have, you could be, you know, working, all through the night or you could be totally free and nothing might happen and then seasonally it would change. So it was very direct in terms of like you as the veterinarian are serving that client and you're serving the health of their animals. But in California, the dairies are much, much bigger. Um, and the ag is set up differently. It's managed differently. It's not as, it's still family owned. Like I think 90%, like a ridiculously high proportion of the dairies in California are still family owned. Um, but obviously those families have like big teams of staff working with them and they have, you know, they've other staff on site because when you have that many cows and you have a large operation, you can't run it between two or three family members. So instead of like two or three family members, you've like a staff of 50. Um, and because of the, I guess the organization of the management and the way things are structured, they're very, very good at doing their own monitoring and their own routine work. So their own vaccination programs, their own preventative health programs. So the veterinarian's role in that client interaction is very different because we primarily come to our clients on like a much more regular basis. We have like this day, we go to this dairy every Monday, we go to the other dairy every Tuesday and it's once a week or it's once every two weeks and we'll come and we'll preg check everything that's at the point of being preg checked at like their 36 days post-service or their 40 days post-service. And we'll do that. Then we'll go look at their calves and we'll vaccinate all the calves that are after coming into the window of they're ready to get this vaccine. 
will you know look at how they're feeding their calves will look at do their like do they have a lot of diarrhea in their calves right now does it look like their wean calves are coughing more than they usually would be like are things running smoothly are the cows in the parlor are they clean like is their milk clean are they getting mastitis are they not are things going the way it should be or, or not and then we analyze their data we take you know we take backups we bring our usb sticks and we like connect it to their computer and we we take backups of their their data management software and we take it back and then we keep that on record and we monitor that for them and we look for changes in you know spikes and things that might be concerning or things that are going well and we'll kind of take that back and talk with them so there's the interaction is very different it's more of an auditing it's more of a assisting like you're kind of there as a consultant and a helper and you're still looking like at sick things they'll be like you know we're we're stupid with this cow we don't know we're, like we've already tried to treat using our like treatment protocol like they'll have treatment protocols and they'll have and usually we write that for them at the beginning and then we make sure it's working and they'll you know they'll present things to us but that level of like clinical care and individual animal attention is on a different plane because we're more overseeing how it's managed and how it's done than actually physically doing it ourselves but yeah, so you're you're describing a little bit of the you know the 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 large volume uh, some people would say intensively you know intensively done agriculture where you have a high volume of animals it's a very it needs to be in a very efficient operation and the result of that is basically more milk for less cows less time less less yep. less whatever contra and you say you say you actually prefer that system I think I've heard you say that you prefer that to the way it's done in Ireland. And if, if I didn't mishear you, can you explain, explain why you think that is, or, or maybe you don't think that is. No, you're, yeah, you're right. I do prefer it. I guess I like, you know, I like things working well. I like efficiency. You know, they just talk about good mathematicians or lazy mathematicians. I think like the better you set up a system and the better it runs, like the better, the better the outcome. I appreciate and enjoy things like that. And I grew up on small dairies and it's not that they're necessarily bad or worse, but there's a big difference in, you know, two people running 50 cows and you're physically carrying everything everywhere and you're trying to keep everything together and stop things bursting at the seams compared to a large operation that has an organized flow. Like the calves at this age go into this pen, they're monitored by this person every day that is checked off and that's made sure it's running right. Then the cows that are this stage into their lactation cycle are in this pen they're being checked every day for breeding. They're moving into this next scenario. That level of management, I really enjoy and appreciate because it facilitates, you know, the well, the productivity of it, you know, it kind of facilitates that well, that, like you said, the increased efficiency. Things are more organized. There's more roles and it does work out, I think, better for the cows as a whole because they're getting more, I guess it's more organized, it's more efficient. There's more... Yeah. Whereas we have two people working with 50 cows. Yes, they see all 50 cows every day, but they also have to, you know, they also have to go feed the calves and they also have to go, they have to go to the sales yard and they have to try and deal with that. And they have to go into the office and they have to do their own accounts and they have to do their own books. So I've experienced firsthand how difficult it can be to run all of these things with like one or two people compared to having an actual team and an organized setup. And I mean, that's, I guess that's how all industries go. The more, the bigger it gets, the more organization you need because, and like, I think numbers in animal agriculture, the beauty of animal ag as an industry is animals will not lie to you. Like you're working with biological units. You're not working with cogs or gears. You're working with a living thing and a living being. So they will not lie to you. Like if you are messing something up, if you are not 
addressing a management issue. Like if you're not managing your calves at birth correctly or you're not managing how much milk they're getting, very, very quickly, they're all going to start losing weight. They're going to start getting sick and you're going to see the fruits of your mistake quite directly and immediately. And in animal agriculture, numbers are numbers are like the biggest, I guess, litmus test because when you start adding in more animals, those little cracks start getting magnified. If you have 100 cows and there's, you know, you and your wife run it, you can kind of cover up and explain away a lot of things just by pure brute force of working harder instead of working smarter. But if you have 5,000 cows, unless you have a team of like 100 people there every single day, you need to be working smarter and you need to be looking for those signals and you need to be checking and seeing what your animals are telling you. And like the better the animals feel and are doing, the better, the more you get out of them, the more milk they give, the longer they milk for, the better their outcomes are. So it's, that's the thing I like about working with animals in this setting too. You know, animals are great. They're very honest. They don't, they don't lie. They don't cover yeah, anything you, up. You bring up some interesting points. And I think, look, when I grew up in Wisconsin, there was a lot of small dairy farmers and, you know, some like 50 to 100 cow family type things when it was just the immediate family running it. And, you know, they were on, on the clock seven days a week, 365 days a year, basically. They, you know, I don't think people realize if you have 50 cows that you're responsible for, it's like, imagine if you had 50 dogs in your house or something like that and how much work that would be to keep, take care of them and manage them. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was actually introduced to an efficiency model uh, during the last year I was there. I was actually, I was teaching at a high school and one of the students there had a family dairy farm and they were actually piloting this new program where they set up this uh, mechanical milker system where the cows would actually walk out of their stable and walk into the milking station and it would hook itself up and then it would it would milk the cow and it would take all these metrics on the cow so like if there was a problem with the cow it would send like an automated text to the to the farmer saying like this cow's not doing too good send you know pull them off the or pull her off the the milking operation for a bit and all this all these really efficient setups and one of the things that that student told me that i thought was really interesting was all the farms that i had seen to that date would usually milk their cows twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And they said the thing they first noticed when the cows were allowed to just milk themselves is they would go about three times a day. Mm -hmm. And the most popular time was at like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or something like that. So it's like, it's something you almost need in like a, an efficient form of technology to, to maximize that unless you want to be staying up at all hours of the night trying to take care of it. Yeah, they're robotic. Yeah, that's robotic milking machines. And I'm a big fan of that. They're really, really, and I guess, you know, I'm, I'm into like tech and all that exciting new stuff. So yeah, robotic milking parlors are amazing. And they're really, really good for the cows and everything. And like you said, I think the average milking number, like because the cows self present, and it does work out at like 2.8 milkings per day or something across the whole herd. So cows just cows do like being milked a lot <laughs> like you know they you know they're carrying big bags of milk in between their legs all day like and they're generating it so they don't want to be walking around with that for too long so they do appreciate coming back to the parlor and milking it out and you know heading back for a, a snack again but um those robotic milking parlors are not the routine in california yet because robotic milking parlors like that and i don't want to go into too much detail in the specifics of dairy production because that's too technical but robotic milking parlors work really well for like barns of cows with about 100 cows per one robot 
But in California, the herds can be up to 5,000 or 8,000. So there's much faster and more efficient ways of milking that many cows because the robots are still not at that level where they can keep up with like a team of three guys that are running a like an 80 unit milking parlor or whatever. You know, they're milking 80 cows and it takes five minutes to milk a cow on average. So they have like 80 cows running through in every five minutes. So, you know, that's faster for large numbers. But those milking parlors also have similar technology where they're monitoring everything that comes out of the cow. They're monitoring how much that cow ate, how much she didn't eat, and they're giving that real-time feedback to your your database. And that's the kind of thing that we as the veterinarians are looking at. We're like looking at that data and trying to make decisions on it for the benefit of the farm. Patrick, I mean, obviously, a dairy farmer is interested in producing milk and I mean that's what they that's what their basic job is and you know efficiency in the cows is obviously a you know a good thing to have talk a little bit about the welfare of the animal because a lot of people think that larger scale uh, production of animal ag is always associated with worse health outcomes you know or or less uh you know, poor, poor animal welfare conditions. Can you just, can you address some of those concerns and, and contrast and compare that to, you know, what you're in now versus maybe what you saw in Ireland or, or what you know in general about, uh, you know, cattle sure. in general? Sure. So there was a paper I had that I was going through with students last year and I couldn't find it right now before this, but I, and I don't want to go too much into papers and reading stats, but, um, you know, welfare as like a scientific outcome to measure, you know, you need metrics to measure it by. You can't just look at a cow and say her welfare is better than another cow. So, you know, you need metrics. So things you can take are, you know, the prevalence of diseases on these herds, the prevalence of things like lameness. Lameness is a big thing in cow's life because they walk around a lot and they're, they're like big land yachts. They're not the most agile. So their feet are important. And if they're lame, that really affects their quality of life. Um, Time budgets are something that we talk a lot, a lot about in dairy cows. People don't realize that the routine and the life of a cow is very important to her. And her time budget is very important, like how much time she has to eat, how much time she has to ruminate, how much time she has to sit down. And then something I read recently, which I thought was interesting, was cows actually spend like a significant, like two to three hours a day just licking each other and socializing. And if you have set situations where your cows are spending too long walking to the parlor every day because your pen is so far from your parlor that your cows are squishing all this time into shorter time budgets and they don't get all that time to socialize. That is associated with decreased welfare. Um, and let me think how I get into this. So disease prevalence would be, I guess, a good way of looking at welfare because you know there's common diseases that cows and beef animals get just from the nature of the situations they're in and the nature of what they are. Like cows get mastitis a lot. That's the most important economically and welfare-wise disease of dairy cows because, you know, they're using their udders every day. We're taking milk out of it. There's a lot of things contacting their udders and they're producing a lot of milk. Um, so mastitis is their biggest risk, you know, their biggest impact on their welfare. So usually when we think about dairy cow welfare, we talk about mastitis. Um, and... I guess to go back to the large dairy versus small dairy thing, in terms of mastitis, there is no difference in the prevalence between the amount of mastitis a cow on a big dairy and a small dairy gets. Um, it's about 25%, I think, that nationally, like in the US, that 25% of cows will get an episode of mastitis. 
um, during a lactation and it's higher and it's lower depending on, you know, the farm and what, like, you know, all these different factors, the age of the cow, but that's the average. But then, um, I guess another way people think about welfare and animals is these five freedoms. Do you know the concept of the five freedoms of welfare? It's like the freedom to express natural behavior, access to feed, access to water, access to shelter, and then is it socializing? I can't remember all five exactly. But that's something that people use against, like you said, against these large scale operations a lot. And I've seen that on like advertising for organic milk or organic meat. They're like, oh, our animals are getting these five freedoms because they're running around fields and they're whatever. And that's a very flawed way of assuming it because these five freedoms and like, you know, we look at how humans live nowadays. We all live in apartments or like buildings or blocks. You know, we're very, very different to what we were naturally roaming around in caves and in the wild. But infant mortality is way, way lower. Like nutrition is much, much higher. Like people's quality of life is much higher. The fact that we're not expressing these natural, like we're roaming around caves and fields doesn't seem to be impacting our welfare in that way. And I guess in a roundabout way, you could look at that for animals. Like our production animals are very, very genetically specific animals for their cause. Like the dairy cows that we use do not exist in the wild, do not exist in nature. They're hybrids, like they're, like they're the Ferraris of the cow breed, like the Holstein Frisians. They are like the Ferrari of a cow. You know, they have very specific needs. They produce very optimally when that's met and if those things are not met they don't appreciate it and they don't do as well for you so when you look at the five freedom thing like the freedom to express natural behavior um cows in large pens like this and people think that they're squished in that there's you know no room for them to get around that is false because the number one driver of milk production in a cow is caloric intake because to make milk your body has to have calories to make it so if you want to increase how much milk your cows are making, you want to get them to eat more. So when you put all your cows in a pen, you have 200 cows in a pen, they feed at the front, there's feed barriers. You need to make sure that there is enough feeding barrier space for every single cow in that pen. Because when you put feed down, cows are social animals, so they will all rush and eat together. And even though the feed is there all of the time and it's always available, they'll, they'll walk away and they'll forget about the feed and then the excitement is over. So they will not feed as much as what they do will at that initial social burst so they'll all go together so if you have and these are like things that we look at a lot in our dairies as veterinarians like we look at all these management factors that come in so overcrowding in pens is one of the biggest negatives in terms of animal welfare and productivity because immediately they're not eating as much immediately they're not making as much milk immediately you've lost money on your cows you're throwing money away by overcrowding your cows so that is not in the interest of the farmer so people avoid that that's a big negative water access obviously milk is like 80 percent water so cows drink a large amount of water every day water access has to be very easy and very plentiful feed access has to be depending on how you feed but pretty much 24 7 and it has to be complete and it has to be formulated perfectly like i'm not an animal nutritionist that's an entire or a dairy cow nutritionist that's an entire separate bachelor's degree that i have not taken i'm like i only know the surface level compared to like what is out there in terms of the specifics of feeding cows and not just dairy cows like beef cows as well so that feed has to be perfect and it has to be there so animals cows in these large farms if you take these five freedoms or whatever they actually 
usually would have a better outcome in terms of their welfare that way because they have ad libitum access to feed all of the time. They have water everywhere. They have shade because if they're overheating, they're not going to they're not going to reproduce. They are in a big pen with 200 other cows. They're not isolated into individual stalls. They're not in small groups. They're not being bothered as much by the people on the farm because they're in large groups together. They're monitored, but they're like allowed to socialize. They do everything together. And I personally, since I came here, have been really, really impressed by how well this works for the animals because when they're in large units like that in large groups they do have that opportunity to express natural freedoms like our natural behavior they socialize they hang out they you know they're in these big natural groups and they have all of these things there for them and the larger the dairy and the larger the operation the stricter people are like i said earlier you know the more numbers you have the more things you have to get right the stricter people are on their vaccination schedules on their parasitology management on their mineral supplementation on their diets and then when you go to the small farms and i don't want to say small farms are bad or that they're worse like they're not potentially worse and they're not potentially better like you know it depends from farm to farm but when you take a cow that's roaming around in a field or if you have 50 cows and they're roaming around 100 acres and you only have a couple of people it is more difficult to make sure that those cows have the perfect nutrition at all times because soil varies grass growth varies you know, there's a lot more variables there. It's less controlled. It's more difficult to make sure that they're not suffering from a high parasite burden because they're roaming around. You don't know what they're licking or coming in contact with. There's a lot of worms and parasites in the ground that affect their welfare in a really large way. Um, you, you need to make sure you're warming more regularly and more rigorously. You don't know their exposure to disease. Like biosecurity is a massive area of animal agricultural management. When you have wider open spaces, your cows potentially are exposing themselves to a lot more things. They're putting themselves at bigger risks. Um, and you know, you're just not, it's less controlled. So you can't, you know, it's not that you can't do as good a job for your cows, but it's not that it's automatically better. Like having them in these big facilities where everything is controlled is not worse than saying that they're out in a field and they're expressing natural behavior. And sometimes out in a field expressing natural behavior is worse because there's not enough grass there. Like I've been to farms here that are very, very large and very big systems and they're not very well run. And I've been to farms here that are massive and have a lot of cows and they're like excellently run. And then in Ireland, I've been to farms that are beautiful and everything is taken care of. And I've been to other farms and like they're grass fed and they're natural and they're everything. And they have worm burdens that are making them almost anorexic. You know, they're, they're not being cared for in that, to that same level. But then other other grass-fed, free-ranging, roaming, whatever farms that are. So it's it depends a lot, but I would never say that our big systems are worse. And I think for some of these outcomes that we can measure, like disease prevalences in general are lower for things like metritis, respiratory diseases, like other infectious diseases, they do have a statistically lower prevalence on these large mega dairies. And part of that is biased because there was a study where they did like surveys of prevalences. And part of that is biased because a lot of the large dairies are in California and California dairies do a very, very good job at keeping their cows very, very healthy. So, and because it's biasing them because a lot of the big dairies in the sample subset are in California. So automatically they're a little bit better. But when you look at these numbers, the disease prevalences and things like lameness can be low, like for different, for certain diseases can be much lower than the smaller dairies. Hey, Patrick, talk to me a little bit about, um, because you said about 25% of the cows will, will experience, about 25% of them will experience mastitis during each mil each uh, lactation cycle. Yep. 
you know, I assume that's true. That's going to be treated with some sort of antibiotic would be my guess. I mean, I, and I don't know if there's another way to treat that, but I would assume maybe, or maybe it's just inflammation and there's something, how, how are they treated? And is it a concern? Is, is it, is, so is, and again, this is hard to compare because cows really aren't wild animals. So we don't have any good comparisons, but I would say, you know, what would, what would, it, what would the analogy be in a wild animal? Say you had a, I don't know, a wild Cape Buffalo or something like, I'm, I'm, you know, that's obviously that's Africa, but I mean, do we have any ways to say, are these cows getting mastitis more than they would in nature if they were, you know, calving on their own? How do we, how do we sort of look at that sort of aspect? So I know there's no way to directly measure that. I will say that when you, and a big area of dairy production science is milking management. So that is something that is very heavily studied, studied, like what the things you do that affect your chances or risks of getting mastitis. And we know immediately that things like wearing gloves, like massively reduce that, managing the, the hygiene around your cow. So every cow, well not every cow, but I mean, good dairy practice is that every time a cow comes in, there's a pre-dip, like a, pre, a disinfectant is pre-applied to the teat prior to milking that is wiped off. Then the milking unit is attached. Then afterwards, they get dipped again to protect them further after they leave the parlor. So there's practices like that that very strongly reduce that. But then when you go to like the natural scenario where you have, and I mean, I guess in our cow-calf operations, you have beef cows that will allow their calves to suckle them naturally. So that would be a good comparison to like our man, our man-milked cows. And, um, and honestly, part of why we don't let our dairy cows get suckled by their calves and we kind of, intervene and start milking them ourselves is because it's safer to do it yourself and it's safer to to be doing these pre-dippings and to be maintaining that hygiene around your around your cow's udder because if the calf is in there the calf is contaminating the udder and the calf is introducing a much bigger risk and it's the same for these free-ranging our um cow calf beef operations but they're not milking cows so their mastitis risk is not as grave because their milking period would be shorter and their yields are lower but then, and you go back to traditional milking where people kind of milked their cows by hand. And it used to happen not that long ago in Ireland. Like my grandmother didn't put her milking parlor in until I guess 60 or 70 years ago. So they milked everything by hand. And, um, and like human tuberculosis was massively endemic in Ireland around that time point because, you know, these, the milk quality was lower. The, the milk had higher levels of bacteria and it had potentially infectious diseases. Like, you know, there's things that we've now become aware of and are controlling a lot stricter to improve that for the cows and improve that for the health of us. And just like I said, how the mastitis risk is, not, is, is pretty much the same for the small and the big dairies. That shows us that, you know, even though we've put them into massive, like much, much larger operations where they're getting less of that individual cow attention because a big thing with mastitis is early detection. So you would think that the smaller the herd, the better you would be doing at early detection because like where I grew up milking with my uncle, we knew every single one of his 50 cows. We knew if yesterday and today and the day before that, if her udder felt different, if it was a little bit hotter, if her milk looked different. So we knew that from day to day, every single day for every single cow because we were looking at them so often, like they were, you know, what we're staring at twice a day. But then you see that on the massively larger dairies with 5,000 cows and you have a team of like 10 guys that rotate through and there's three of them at a time milking and they're told you need to diagnose mastitis and you need to do this and you need to do that. The mastitis risk is not different, even though these guys have no idea which cow is which in like a setup like that. So I don't know if that is a good way to illustrate it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's as good as we, I mean, we might be able, as good as we can get. But so let's say, uh, so you have a cow with mastitis. So how does that typically treat it? Uh, and, and again, I, my assumption is it's going to be antibiotics because it's, you know, it's generally an, an infection of the, of the uh, you know, the udder, I guess. Yep. And uh, does, can you just talk in general about antibiotic usage in these livestock animals mm-hmm. uh, in 2019? I know there's been some recent changes, at least I know in the beef cattle industry, I think 2017, they passed some laws in the U.S. Talk to us about usage of antibiotics in these animals, when they're used, when they're not used, okay. uh, and, and what the potential benefits and problems of antibiotic usage in these animals are. Because a lot of people are really, they don't like antibiotics. They don't like these animals to receive antibiotics. And can you, can you maybe yeah. give us some information on that? Sure. Which is something that always makes me sad because I guess I grew up with all these cows. So like denying them therapy <laughs> when I think they should get it, you know, that, I don't know, that's something that makes me sad when people don't want to give their cows antibiotics. I'm like, these poor cows, like they need, <laughs> they need antibiotics. Like they feel sick. But, um, so with mastitis, there's like, and mastitis is a huge area with a lot of research. So there's a lot of different types of pathogens. There's gram negatives, gram positives, there's atypicals, there's non bacterial, like there's some kind of slightly fungalish pathogens. So in California, especially culturing of mastitis is a big, big thing because there are certain bacteria that yes, you treat. There's other bacteria that if this is the cause of the mastitis, you don't treat antibiotics don't matter. And like you probably know gram negative bacteria, you know, they kind of release their endotoxin and they do their damage, but the bacteria has already ran its course and it's pretty much gone at that point. Like giving an antibiotic to an E. coli infection in the other is a waste of time. So people will not treat or treat if appropriate. And it depends on how much they know and how, how much they know diagnostically at the time, if they're not diagnosing to that level, the response is to treat everything with antibiotics. Um, if you're diagnosing more or if you know a little bit more, you don't have to, and it's just anti-inflammatory. Um, but during lactation treatment of mastitis in cows, which is like when you kind of put intramammary infusions of these like suspensions of antibiotics into the udder where the mastitis is, that's the kind of classic and the typical, which then comes with an associated milk withdrawal, which is usually acceptable, totally fine because people will pasteurize that milk and then feed it to their calves instead and not send it for saleable milk to humans. And that's something that is also being studied because people want to know, like, do the residues of these antibiotics have an impact on the calf health? Are they going to like cause resistant pathogens to crop up in your, in your calf barn um, over time if you're always doing this? And so far, none of that research has actually shown a risk because the residues are so low and, you know, they're diluted out and it's pasteurized. So, I mean, that's a concern, but it's, that's something that has been shown to be significant yet. Um, so people will take that milk out and they'll separate it and, they'll, and they're happy with that. They'll put this cow in the hospital barn. The hospital barn will come into the parlor last. You know, the, the milking tank is shut off and it's diverted to a hospital tank. So all of that milk does, never enters the food chain because if you put antibiotic, hot, like hot milk, if you put like a hot tank into the, into the processor, you're looking, <laughs> you're looking at, you know, fines. If it happens again, more fines. You could get your milk supply cut off. You could have potentially end in jail time. So that's something that is very, very, very respected. The fact that antibiotic use is very um, precisely done with livestock because you're dealing with the food chain. Like we're, you know, we're feeding our children and our families and the population with this. Like nobody wants to be responsible for a public health issue. So that's something that's really you know, very, very strictly respected. 
Patrick, there is, uh, you know, and this may be, I don't know if it, it's specific to dairy or beef uh, when it comes to cattle, but there is some belief out there that animals that are, that are raised in a grass-fed environment, uh, you know, not in a feedlot, are less prone to developing infections and therefore uh, will utilize antibiotics to a lesser degree. Is, is, there, is there some truth to that or what is the story on that? Well, you know, with infectious diseases, like the density and exposure is a big part of infectious disease pressure. So the more animals you have in one place and the less room they have to move around, yes, you have a higher infectious pressure. So potentially like respiratory pathogens are maybe a bigger risk in confined set setups than out in fields. Like you don't have to worry about respiratory diseases or pneumonia or like viral pneumonia is the most significant in cows. Um, that is then followed by a secondary bacterial infection. Like you don't have to worry about that as much when they're out in the field. So yes, then potentially you've less of an antibiotic use and risk. But then there's other diseases that are a bigger risk because of the nature of like this free grazing. Like in Ireland, bovine TB is still very, very prevalent. It's this country is free. But in Ireland, like a big risk factor for that is contact with wildlife reservoirs of that pathogen. And then there's other diseases like bovine viral diarrhea, which is a notifiable economically devastating disease that most countries are trying to eradicate or have like it's eradicated here it's ireland is now officially free of bovine viral diarrhea it's an abortive virus and um you know a big risk factor is that if your cows are free-ranging they're potentially in contact with cows or animals that belong to other people and you don't know that herd's disease status so that there's a biosecurity risk there so it i guess it varies but when you do have more animals in one place the you know the basic epidemiological principle is like there's an increased infectious pressure for certain pathogens like this especially like commensal things that go from cow to cow and then they can be triggered by but like and you probably know you like you know with infectious diseases a lot of the time you know you're getting things that exist in the environment or are ubiquitous like these pathogens might be ubiquitous to the environment anyway and a clinical break is actually associated with an immunosuppressive event like a big stressor which is why when we and cows like routine they don't like changes they don't like they like doing their thing every single day so when we introduce stressful events to cows lives that is a point where we're very aware that this is when you could get an outbreak or a breakdown and um and that's why stressful events in cows lives are very strictly managed and that would be things like dehorning them when they're calves when they're babies drying them off when they're finishing their lactation period you know you stop milking them and like at that point their milk production is reduced anyway but you're drying them off um, and so suddenly they're going from milked every day to napping milk. So that's a big, big upset to their daily life. The calving, like parturition is a big stressor. So, you know, there's areas where we focus in on and we know. Um, so, yes, I guess overall there is a difference in the potential for antibiotic use, but it's not, um, I don't know, it's not as clear cut as like these people out in fields use less than people in big houses. Let me ask you about, I mean, because we often hear about, and, and, I mean, I don't, and I don't know, I don't work on a dairy cow, but like, you know, when, when the cow gives birth, you know, the, 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 the calf is then removed from the scene, you know, removed from the mother and you guys take over feeding the calf. And, and the reason for that is to, my understanding is prevent infection, uh, prevent the mother from becoming a biohazard where she accidentally steps on the calf and kills the calf, um, things like that, which apparently do happen. But what, you know, we hear people saying that the, all the male calves are then immediately killed 
Uh, what, what's the story behind that? Where does that, where does that come from? Um, so you're right with your whole thing about how we remove the calf. And a lot of it is in interest of the calf and in interest of the mother. Calf is a potential source of infection to the mother. She's a big source to the calf. But also cows are not as conscientious in their parenting as we are with our calves because, you know, if it's your calf, you want it to do the best it can. So we remove them and we, we pretty much like, you know, we, we disinfect them, we protect them, we might vaccinate them at the point of birth for certain things. We give them colostrum because the placentation of cows is different to humans and dogs and cats. It's, um, it's much less of a complete placentation. So there's absolutely zero transfer of immuno, immunoglobulins across the placenta to the calf at the time of birth. So calves are born pretty much immunologically totally naive. And how they get that immunity from their mother, which is different to how humans and other species get it. Like we kind of are born with at least some kind of maternal immune system. Calves get it 100% from that colostrum. And it's so important that they get that like good quality colostrum in a timely time point because there's this whole mechanism of passive transfer. And the longer it goes from, you know, passive transfer across cell membranes is clouded out by like contamination and bacteria and it you know, it can wane really, really quickly. So we, we very strictly manage the outcome of that calf because these things are associated with their immediate health. Then um, the male calves, so I guess that comes from places where that does happen, where male calves are just killed, and it varies regionally. Like here in California and in the United States as a whole, these male calves are usually transported to beef ranches, so in like the Central Valley of California, where most of the large dairies in California are, there is also a large number of calf rearing ranches that primarily buy beef calves from dairies every single day. So they have shipments of a couple of hundred beef calves every single day, and they take them on and they have rows and rows of calves and they have like, you know, staff that are very specialized to just raising beef calves. And they go through that entire life cycle and then they graduate at maybe six months or maybe, you know, 12 months or 18 months depending on the ranch and they might graduate to a different facility or get sold somewhere else where they will continue on their like beef finishing life cycle so the majority of beef calves or male calves here are just are in, enter that food chain and enter that system there is and in ireland it's very similar a lot of people will self-raise their own beef calves and they'll have like a little separate enterprise of beef cattle over in like that field over there or over in that house and they'll have their dairy heart a little bit separate or they'll sell it to somebody that does that. Like some of my uncles um, just work in that field and they just buy beef cal or male calves and they just rear them. I know in places like Australia and New Zealand, there was trends for a while where the vat, like the market value of cer certain breeds was so low that people didn't even want to buy these calves because certain like, you know, very, and cows are very genetically specialized. You have dairy cows and you have beef cows and they're, like, you know, they look totally different. They grow different. They do different things. So if you have male calves in a beef scenario, sometimes, depending on the breed, they will never pay off how much you pay to feed them. And depending on the beef market, they can become worthless. And there was a trend for like a while ago where people were talking about these bobby calves in New Zealand where they were just taken out and shot, which honestly is the most humane thing to do just to shoot these calves like after they're born if they're not going to be fed or cared for and i think i'm not i don't want to say because i'm not sure i've never been to australia but i think there was like changes in legislation that you couldn't just kill these calves immediately 
which potentially was worse because then people weren't allowed to shoot them. So they would just leave them to starve. And that was like a big issue. So then they had to address that again, because, you know, if you're not allowed to shoot the calf, but it's going to lose you money, like, what do you do with it? This episode of Human Performance Outliers is brought to you by fellow carnivore and Legal Shield associate Doug Lee. Through Legal Shield's smartphone app, Doug is helping to level the playing field by bringing affordable legal services to everyone right on their phones. For just $24.95 a month, families have instant access to a local team of lawyers working on your behalf, providing legal advice, traffic violation assistance, will preparation, IRS audit assistance, family and domestic services, and contract and document review, just to name a few. Doug also offers ID Shield, the most comprehensive identity protection and recovery service in all of North America. Members get access to a licensed private investigator to help resolve any identity theft issues that arise. Last year alone, there were more than 780 reported data breaches compromising the identities of nearly 170 million people. Responding quickly to ID theft is the best way to prevent serious complications and protect your good name. Doug offers business plans and gun owners plans as well. So head over to douglee.info, that's D-O-U-G-L-E-E dot I-N-F-O, to get the app and learn more about how Legal Shield has been protecting families for over 40 years. I mean, that, that is a, as alarming as that may sound to some people, that is a, a very sort of realistic thing. You know, I mean, maybe uh, some vegans could offer to become owners of those, those little male bobby calves. I mean, obviously I'm being facetious. It's never going to happen, but you have all these animals that if, if you cannot afford to take care of them, uh, you know, we can either turn them out into the wild and let them take their chances. And we know that a ruminant in the wild, particularly a young ruminant in the wild doesn't last very long. They usually get eaten by some sort of predator. That's, that's typically what we see happen to those. Yep. So you've got these animals that are giving birth and then what do you do with them? And do you, you you know, do you take the time and, and raise them as beef if you can, if you can afford to do so, because, you know, there's no one paying you. I mean, you've got to make a profit on your business to, to, to yep. continue to ranch or to farm. And, you know, unless somebody wants to pay you to raise these cows that are otherwise going to end up losing you money, you've got to deal with them somehow. And I think that's the same, you know, as horrible as it sounds, I think that's the same thing we see with these male chickens that, that are, you know, in the egg production, you know, they've got, what am I going to do with this animal? Is it more humane for me to just kill it immediately, uh, you know, before it's invested in anything in life? Or should I, you know, give it an awful life or, or you know, hope somebody else would do that? I mean, it's almost, it's, it's kind of like an argument around human abortion. I mean, you know, it's the same sort of thing, but, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe six hours later, you know, because we have these people that are, that are pro-abortion, you know, even up to, you know, and I, I don't want to get into this conversation because it's, it's too politically charged. But I mean, you think about when we get into the, this, what's, how do you most humanely treat animals? And is yep. it uh, to not make them, never allow them to be born in the first place, which some people would say that's the best solution. Or other people say we've got all these animals that are being created and we cannot humanely take care of them. Therefore, the best thing to do is just to, uh, you know, humanely uh, destroy them, know, yeah. batch them. And, and I mean, that's the same thing that uh, the, the Humane Society does with a lot of the, the stray animals. I mean, PETA does that all the time. They kill all kinds of animals because they don't have a better option for that. And I, and I don't know why we don't, you know, we, we, we sort of embrace that with, you know, the Humane Society, yeah. uh, but we condemn people in the animal agriculture 
uh, for, yeah, for I mean, basically doing the same thing. And I don't think you or anybody working in the industry, maybe with rare exception, goes into the industry to intentionally mistreat, harm, or, you know, do some sort of uh, malevolent thing to animals. I mean, maybe I'm mistaken. I mean, is there some point in the day where you get a thrill out of kicking a cow or uh, seeing a cow suffer? Is that, is that something that most people in this industry do? Um, I mean, I don't think you'd last very long if you're the kind of employee that does that, or if you're the farmer that's interested in that, because, you know, like we said earlier, you know, your biologic units are your product. <laughs> so the better you work with them, the better. And like a lot of farmers, like it's a it's a difficult job. Like I like you know I'm a veterinarian now, but I'm first firstly a farmer, and that's still who I am. And it's you know it's a difficult job. It's a vocation, and if you you know you need a good like not that you need a good reason, but you know usually people have a good reason why they do it, and it's because they love working with these animals. Like that's why I told you earlier my edu- like my when I upbringing, I didn't have any other options because that was all I could see doing, just continuing to work with cows in whatever way I could figure it out. But um, what I do want to say is um, in terms of the male calf, like what do we do with the male animals that aren't potentially worth anything? One of the biggest, I guess one of the best innovations in terms of the welfare of these animals in recent agriculture, and it's not that recent, but um, is the, the kind of advent of the sex sorted semen and the use of artificial insemination, obviously. But do you know, like, are you familiar with the concept of sex sorting semen? Uh, I mean, I assume this means you can predict the, the, the sex of the offspring. I mean, I, I don't, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I haven't heard that specific term, but I mean, that's my assumption. Yeah. So, and the technology around it, like, I don't know the exact specifics and I won't go into that, but the technology around it has improved a lot quite recently, like in the last 10 years, this concept has been around for much longer than that. But initially when it first came in the market, the conception rates were a lot lower and it was quite expensive. So market-wise, it wasn't uptaken that well because artificial insemination has a lower conception rate immediately than natural service because you have to predict the time of ovulation very well in your cow, and we're not bulls, so we don't naturally sense it. So we use all these aids to like help us. Like you know, People use activity monitors. They use tail chalk because the cows jump on top of each other, and you, they rub off the, the chalk. We use like all these aids. Are, like Visually, we watch cows to see are they expressing these behaviors we you know we use all these aids or we can synchronize them with different reproductive drugs and to inseminate them because artificial insemination is the mainstay of agriculture now because you know you want superior genetics you want the the best cows that are going to do the best for you and be the most environmentally friendly and productive and everything so you're going to pick that semen that comes from those premier bulls and you're going to put that in all of your cows and that is what the mainstay of animal agriculture in the bovine world is and the sex sorting of that has now in the last 10 or so years like the technology has cut up and the conception rates are comparable to non-sorted like conventional semen and even like the dairies i work with in Tulare, almost all of them use as their primary line is the sex sorted semen and and it's gotten very good that we don't actually see that many bull calves anymore unless people want a bull calf unless it's a cow that's like coming to the end of her life like not her lifespan like she's five or six lactations in she's getting older her fertility is lower so they're like you know this sex artist semen mightn't you know we might just be throwing away money because she's less fertile anyway we'll put like a, a beef cross like into this cow and then we'll get like things that are more marketable to the beef industry as a as a hybrid or a cross um so yeah we're not even seeing 
that many male calves anymore because of that and the technology that comes with it. And I think it's very interesting that nowadays, and this is separate to animal ag, but like nowadays we're very into optimizing our lives with technology and like, you know, downloading all these apps and like jumping on all these things. But for some reason, people perceive that currently in the market very, very negatively towards their food. Like back when microwaves first came in, microwaves were like this amazing new invention and everybody wanted a microwave. And now it's flipped to the opposite extreme where we want more natural, more old fashioned, less of everything in our food. And like these innovations and these technologies are not necessarily bad for your health. Like all these GMOs that people talk about, usually their primary function is to improve the quality of the produce. And, um, and that's something I've been talking about recently because as there's increasing pressure on different industries, including agriculture to do something about their environmental impact, which I don't want to get into because animal ag does not really have a net carbon emission anyway, because of the whole, holistic life cycle of the cow and the the way she ferments her forage you know cows aren't really a significant contributor to greenhouse gas compared to like burning of fossil fuels but you know we want to lessen our impact and we want to improve our efficiency and a lot of these technologies are going to be really really important in doing this like it allows us to grow crops for less water it allows us to make them more resistant to changing environmental conditions and things like sex sorted semen and you know different products that we can apply to our cows to make them more efficient like the are you familiar with RBST, the BST hormone that was used in, in milk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a recombinant, yeah, recombinant bovine serum. Somatotropin, yeah. Somatotropin, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so this that's, is such a, uh, just, to, just to interject here, I mean, this is such a controversial sort of topic. I mean, it really is yeah. because, you know, people, they want to have their cake and they, and they want to eat, you know, they want to have their cake and eat it too. And they're like, we want more food, more cheap food. Uh, we want less environmental impact, but at the same time, we don't want you to use technology or advanced stuff to get there. We want it more natural. And the more natural way is the less efficient, uh, you know, and it, it, it also has problems. And so it's, it's, it's just such a nuanced thing. And it's so many people are weighing in that really don't have a background in this stuff. And there's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating sometimes to deal with. I mean, even the, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to, regret saying this, but even the stuff around like glyphosate, when we talk about using that on crops and, and we just, and, and we had podcasts earlier today where we were railing against the use of glyphosate, okay. but we mm-hmm. look at it, you know, what, what did it, what did it supplant? You know, what was before glyphosate? And then we had something like Paraquat, which was far worse for us. And so it's kind of like, and I mean, part of why glyphosate was chosen and marketed so widely is because it was tested and proven as like less, more benign than like taking aspirin every day. You know, it was like this, the next best thing, like you said, it was the better alternative that still allowed us to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know. I, I just, I just, as we think about how are we going to, you know, feed the world, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like we have to realize that there has to be some sort yeah. of compromise around all this stuff. And that's a, yeah, that's a know, question. I was, um, I was in Washington DC two weeks ago and I was talking with some people from USDA who wrote the, the most recent climate assessment that came out the day after Thanksgiving last year. So last November, they wrote the, the climate assessment of agriculture in the U.S. And, you know, and they go through it. And it's a really good report. If you want to read it, it's long, but it's good. But um, 
you know, and they go through like different things, like different potentials, because there is quite actionable things in their report. Like there's different things we can do. Like we can increase the bio, the bioavailability of like soils by like doing different things with different crops. And, you know, it's an exciting report and something that they mention and bring up a lot and discuss and like some references they use are different new technologies. Um, one of them is like a, a feed additive that has been shown to reduce methane emissions by cows just by adding it to the feed. And it's been tested to show that it doesn't actually affect the milk output of the cow or the welfare of the cow so far, but it's still not very far in its testing. You know, they're quite small trials, but you know, there's all these new technologies and compounds that have these potential big improvements. And I asked them like, do they have a concern about the fact that there's all these technologies available, but the market perception right now is that people don't want to buy food using technologies like this. And that's something that they, you know, and they're USDA, they're a government organization. They're not a market. They're not a company. They can't influence the market. But, you know, that's something that they, they're like, well, market, you know, the market markets drive everything. Like the markets drive themselves. If people want to buy organic everything, they're going to buy organic everything. We can only do our best in terms of telling people what is best for them. You know, you can't enforce it on them. Yeah, you know, you, you make some interesting points about just like the the technology side of things. And, and sometimes I I get kind of curious about that because like I see some crossover points between, you know, even someone who eats a like animal-based product diet versus someone who eats a plant-based diet. And it seems like there's some commonalities there in terms of like both those groups would prefer an animal to have a high quality life, regardless of whether it's going to end up on your plate or not at the end of the day. Uh, but it's, we, we kind of get into these, these little arguments about like, you know, should you eat meat or should you not eat meat? Should you drink dairy or not drink dairy? And, and we don't really get past those kind of early stage parts of the argument. And yeah. if we would just kind of, if both sides would accept that each side is going to probably do what they're going to do and then look at the commonalities and then work together to improve the commonalities, I think then we find ourselves in a position where you can kind of get some of that technology in place, draw awareness to that technology and hopefully get funding for more technology like that with uh, like you had, a, that was a perfect example with uh, uh, you know, when, when you have the breeding processes where you produce almost all just, uh, milk cows rather than than male cows. So uh, um, that's just a, a, a curious thought I've always had about that. And then on the other thing that you mentioned too, it's like I always thought was kind of a little goofy, or at least I was skeptical about it. Was uh, you know you'll see the mistreat, or you'll see you'll see people posting things about the mistreatment of farm animals, and you know how it's just you know that that's the norm. Whereas like how unrealistic that actually is. Yeah. And I've seen some of those images, like the really crazy cows being dragged and mm -hmm. really weird things. And, and like, I guess coming from a farm and coming from veterinary, sometimes it's very obvious to someone like me what's going on there. And it's not obvious to other people. Like you see like a cow being dragged and like immediately me or my boss or my colleagues, they're like, Oh, Obviously, that cow got trapped. She's down. Cows are really heavy animals. If a cow is recumbent for more than, oh, God, there's like a paper that does it really nicely. But there's like a graph of like prog prognosis because cows get like com compression-based myopathy. Like they crush their own muscles if they do not get up. They can't oxygenate their own muscles because they're heavy animals. They are not designed to be lying on their side for that long. So if a cow is recumbent and not active, 
for greater than 24 hours, her prognosis has already dropped massively. And if it goes on for 36 hours or 48 hours, and I think beyond the 48 hour point, her prognosis is almost less than 10%. It's like very, it's a, it's a medical emergency for a cow. So I'm like, well, it looks like they're doing the best of what they have in this emergency situation to get that cow out of there. And somebody else is like, Oh my God, they're dragging this cow by its back leg. They're ripping it apart. I'm like, they're actually trying to save its life. <laughs> or, um, or there was an example um, last year or maybe a year and a half ago where an animal rights group, like, what was it action now or something animal action now they're in San Francisco. They went onto a dairy in Fresno and abducted a calf. Like basically they stole property. They stole a calf and they had a video of them sneaking in and stealing the calf. And they were looking at the calf hutch. And I mean, California has the small wooden hutches for calves and it's actually probably the best way to like raise young calves like that because wood is porous it allows kind of the bacteria to seep in. It has much higher outcomes in terms of like the health of the calf afterwards. Metal or plastic-based hutches. And one of my professors has done like this whole risk analysis paper, this beast of a study on like all these different risks on calf outcomes. And these little California style wooden hutches that everybody looks at and they're like, oh, those poor calves can't even move, which is not true. They, they're only in there for like the first month and a half of life. So they don't do a lot of moving anyway. And they have enough room. They're tiny. Um, are probably one of the best ways to rear calves. And these people abduct a calf from it, and they're like, oh, it was separated from its mother. Look at this. It's it's like so dehydrated, it can barely walk. It, it, you know, all these things are wrong with it. We took it to a vet, and they gave it everything, and they confirmed that, yes, this calf was on the point of death. And my boss showed me this image, and she was like, look at that calf. She's like, what do you notice about that calf? I'm like, well, it's orange on its belly. She's like, yeah. She's like, because one of the first things you do when a calf is born is you knit, you iodine dip the navel. It's like very, very common. Almost everybody across the world iodine dips their navel because it's one of those practices that you see. It, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. It prevents umbilical infections. So everybody navel dips the, or everybody dips the navel. And this calf has like a big splash of orange on its belly. And I'm like, so that calf is only about two hours old. <laughs> <laughs> and they have this video footage of this calf and they're like look it can barely stand and it's it's so starving that it's trying to suckle on us and it looks like it's dehydrated like it's not dehydrated it's a neonate it's, it was born two hours ago it barely learned how to stand yet that's why it's shaking <laughs> that's why it's like this. time to neglect it at that point <laughs> yeah it, <laughs> it just and like cat if you've ever approached a calf like they suckle on absolutely any surface available like they they, you know, they're licking the size of their hutches, which is why wood is so good because it kind of is a bit safer in terms of biofilms. But um, yeah, they're like licking and suckling on everything. They're learning. But, you know, you get people showing this video and they think like this calf is dying. And to somebody that is familiar with that, I'm like, that's just a normal two hour old calf that is still like Bambi on ice, you know, but I guess... Yeah, I mean, that's very, uh, you know, very illuminating, you know, and, I, and I've, I've seen you comment on things like the, what do you call them, the fairing crates for the pigs, you know, because people talk about the pigs okay, are yeah. in there, and oh my gosh, these pigs are in a crate. I mean, there is a, cons I mean, there is a perception among, you know, people out there that many animals, you know, pigs, cows, spend, you know, 100% of their time stuck in a cage eating corn. I mean, that, that is, I mean, what is the reality of it? And why are these animals sometimes put in crates or sometimes, you know, I know you talked about the young ones, uh, the young calves. What is, what is the situation? And I mean, again, I know your expertise is in dairy cattle, but I mean, what, can you speak to some of these other practices that people find 
okay. horrifying and, and why they may be done and why why people still do them. Okay. So the farrowing crate, I mean, like the farrowing crate is one of the best advancements in animal welfare in recent history because pigs, and I don't know if you've ever grown up with pigs or worked or been around pigs. I mean, they notoriously are not very maternal and they will eat their children, eat their babies. They will lie on them. They will neglect them. They'll stand on them. And that's part of, and that's not saying pigs are bad creatures. That's kind of just part of their evolutionary thing. Like pigs are very prolific. They can have massive litters. They can have, you can pull out like 20 piglets, you know, in exceptional circumstances. It's usually, it's not very often less than like four or five. So they're very prolific and they have a high rate of stillbirths, um, mummified fetuses. So like when you, it's very, normal and that's not that we're mistreating the pigs that is the biology of the pig that of this litter of 10 or 12 that you'll get like eight will advance to adulthood because one was stillborn when it came out anyway and another one was a runt and just lay there and never nursed and died um and another one got stood on and pigs when they're like and there's different triggers for why and sometimes it's genetics and they're more predisposed to do it sometimes it's they get stressed out but they will eat their own young they'll eat the entire litter and they'll just you know, turn around and put their head back in the, the trough and continue eating and they don't, you know, it doesn't bother them. So the farrowing crate, you know, was a massive jump in, I guess, in like, well, not infant mortality, but neonatal pig mortality rates and the success of getting pigs from piglet to adult. And, um, and farrowing crates are like, you know, the pig can't turn around. She's kind of confined to standing and lying and eating, but she's not squeezed in. She's not abused she has food in front of her at all times and she's only there for several hours while she goes through the pro well no i suppose to be fair some people will keep them in longer you know the first couple of days while the piglets are on her and they're drinking you know but it depends um on like the pig system and how they manage it and i'm not a pig expert but um but you know that's the function of the farrowing crate the cageless eggs thing i california now has banned all caged eggs um I think you can only buy cage free eggs and that's not something I'm delighted about because the health outcomes of caged birds are usually superior to caged list birds because of, and it comes down to management. Like, you know, in medicine, you don't want to have to vaccinate for everything and treat everything. You want to manage the patient and like you're big on preventative medicine. And so am I in animals. You want to manage so that it doesn't become a problem and caged birds, they're not overcrowded. They're in cages that, are specified for how many birds are in there. They're usually defecating down through a rail so their feces is removed immediately. The litter is not becoming an issue because you know, some of the health outcomes in birds are, you know, they get infections or sores in their feet from walking in their own manure. Um, they spread infections to each other through the manure. So the caged birds usually have high, superior health outcomes in terms of getting diseases. And I think that is not something we should ignore in terms of welfare, but they have less room to get around but they still have like the appropriately decided, like, you know, the appropriately chosen amount. And then the cage free system is just larger units with more birds in it. And waste management is much more difficult. Feed management is more difficult because you're losing that level of control where you have every bird and you know what every bird is doing. And you know that she's not walking around in her own feces and that she's clean. So caged birds, like not in every case, but in some ways have superior health outcomes and welfare outcomes. So that was something I was not, I don't know, it's a conflicting one to ban that. And it depends on how you look at things and how you analyze it. But that's a decision California made. Um, God, what else is there? 
what else do like people like to pick on beef feedlots? Um, I guess you know confining beef cows into these feedlots and pushing them on grain. That is not exactly how. That's not an accurate description. Like force feeding them grain. Um, and beef feedlots are high density units. Like, you know, there's a lot of animals in one place. You've got a higher infectious disease pressure. So beef feedlots are very intensively managed to facilitate that. The waste management and the manure management is very, very high. The health of these animals is a massive priority because they're in, in a confined space. You've got that extra pressure. They are monitored very, very intensely. There's a lot of prophylactic and metaphylactic management practices in place. Like there's an entire, like I'm not a beef vet, but there is an entire, and I was talking to one of my colleagues who is this morning about, things like that for this talk today but you know there's an like there's an entire science to like processing beef calves and they come in vaccinating for all these things that you're concerned of like managing their nutrition like like transitioning them from their original diet to this more high energy diet for this increased product like efficiency of gaining meat you know you go and like it's 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 a diet that's higher in high energy foods such as like corn and other grains it's not 100% grain that's a very inaccurate way of describing it. There's still forage there, there's still fiber, there's still roughage. And the way the rumen of the cow works, you know, the, microbi the microbiota of the rumen adapts and shifts to what it's being fed and allows that cow to adapt and be efficient on that diet. So there's like a transition, like a gradual transition to this diet until the point of finishing. And this is like, you know, animal science as a whole, and you've talked to Professor Mitloner, like animal science is a, is a very large, complex field. So it's, I can empathize why it's hard for people on the outside that don't have that background or that science understanding to not get why we do these things and to not see how it fits in. And I empathize with that. And I think something, I don't know, I think an issue in the scientific community is that we're very fast to condemn and we're a bit slower to empathize. Like we condemn people because they don't want to get their children vaccinated. And like, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to say you shouldn't vaccinate your children. Like, yes, you should vaccinate your children. But I can empathize with how somebody who knows nothing about science is kind of distrustful. And then as soon as they suggest this, they are shut down. They're told to shut up. They're told they're wrong. I can understand how a reaction like that to something you question makes you maybe more distrustful. So when people are like, oh, is animal agriculture actually good or bad? And we're like, like, how dare you even suggest that? Of course, it's good. Like, you don't even know. Like, that reaction isn't very, I don't know, helpful in terms of making people understand and I can empathize why people don't get why we do the things we do. And it's, yeah, know. it's like you tell someone they, they shouldn't or can't do something. The first thing they're going to do is do that with on one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, you know, it is interesting because like it, it, what you said just there about, you know, how someone like uh, professor Mitloner who's spent his entire life dedicated to this sort of stuff, you know, his voice isn't always heard, but then the person that you mentioned in the second category sometimes is the voice that is heard. So yeah. it's like, it, it's hard to imagine a scenario where the, the person who's researched this stuff for so long has been, been missing so much, so much of the information when someone, someone else who has just picked it up six months ago is yeah. the expert. And that's part of what I admire about your guys's like podcast and your social media accounts, because you know, that's the way media has gone and people like connecting with a the personality. They like seeing a face. And like, I know the CDC gets a lot of negative press from people that don't understand. They like, you know, talk about how the flu vaccine didn't work. And the CDC notably have like really increased their social media presence and they like post things all the time and they post graphics. 
And if you read the comments, it's still very negatively received, even though they've made this effort to move into the social media realm, because it's still like polished graphics and, you know, like info, info announcements. It, they, they don't have like someone relatable, someone talking about their daily life, someone talking about like what we do. Like, they, they don't, you know, you're not getting that personal connection. So what you guys are doing is more, you know, you're being that voice in the same realm, because that's where media has moved to, you know, quite largely nowadays. And I think it's important that we, you know, play ball in the same field. And like, instead of just writing papers and like sharing it with our scientific colleagues, we actually need to take some of these points, some of this information and share it with an audience that can like a white, like that's appreciable to a wider audience. But it's a hard thing to do when you spend all of grad school learning how to write scientifically. They don't tell you <laughs> how to condense it to a tweet. But. Yeah. Well, and you know, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we like this forum because we'll, you know, do hour and a half long episodes and really get into multiple different layers as opposed to, you know, a surface, a surface level type of thing that you're going to find on most social media stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and it's one thing that, you know, and again, this is my own personal agenda, I suppose, but I, I really would like to see more consumers, you know, people that, that either eat animal products or don't eat animal products, spend more time interacting with the people that raise, raise these animals and find out why people do go visit. I mean, I'm sure many people would welcome, Maybe not. I mean, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're tired of being harassed and picked on, mm. uh, but welcome people out to, to visit their operation if, if they wanted to learn why people do things rather than running in there in the middle of the night, you know, stealing their cows and, you know, and not knowing what the hell is going on. And, you know, I, I saw in Australia recently where, you know, a, a group of protesters broke in, they, they, they grabbed some piglets, you know, took them, put them back in, put them in with the wrong, you know, the wrong mother. And of course the mother doesn't like the piglet. that's not hers. And she basically killed them. And so they, they, they indirectly caused, damage but i mean i'm trying to figure out a way to make what you do more accessible to the average person because not everybody's going to drive out to davis california and hang out on a dairy and so you got to figure out a way to, to bring what you guys do into their lives and it's it's yeah. hard uh you know my dogs yeah. are barking right now it's hard to do that uh you know outside of what we're doing now so hopefully we can get more people that will yeah. you know listen in and 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 you know, more and more people like yourself that they're willing to come on and talk to us because I want a dialogue between, you know, we've had several ranchers on now and, and I want more of that. So we can say, you know, this is what really happens because we're, we're being given a portrayal of what's going on. You know, like you said, you perfect examples, you know, them, them stealing a two hour old calf and saying, look how malnourished this thing is. Yeah. I mean, that's the stuff that's going on. Uh, you know, and then we see these slaughter videos that, Every rancher I've talked to says, where the hell did that come from? That's not how it's done. Yeah, you know, maybe, in a, maybe in a third world country where, you know, they, they just don't have any other choice. But, uh, you know, I think more and more people interacting is, is a better outcome long term than, than hiding and not, uh, you know, and, and just kind of hunkering down in their own little holes. Yeah, and I think I was spoiled coming from Ireland because it's a small, small country. So almost everybody has an appreciation or knows somebody on a farm because it's one of our primary activities there. So that was something I didn't get until I moved here. You know, to me, it was like normal that everyone knew what was on a farm and now I'm realizing that it's not. And even like for vet school, one of our requirements in Ireland for vet school was that in your preclinical years, your first two years, there was a mandatory amount of time. And it didn't matter if you were never going to touch a cow again. Every vet student had to spend a mandatory amount of time on just a farm or a facility, not with a veterinarian, just with the producers and would have to spend two weeks on a dairy, two weeks with a pig unit, two weeks with a sheep unit. 
and people were just and because i guess ireland people had connections and the school had connections and it was quite easy to place i mean there wasn't even 100 people in my class so everyone got placements and everybody had to go through that experience so everybody graduating there even if they were never going to touch a cow again and were going to be like a cat surgeon for the rest of their lives had that understanding and had that appreciation and i didn't realize when i started working for the vet school here that that wasn't as generic a requirement and i guess my boss kind of put it to me quite well that you know could she was you know there's all these vet students from like la and from cat like everywhere and they you know they all come to vet school and they have no idea what a cow even looks like because that's not what they went to vet school for like can you imagine asking all these farmers to please accommodate all these people from absolutely everywhere for all of this amount of time you know it's not practical here like there's more people living in LA County than there is in most of the rest of the state, the United States, I think. Like, you know, it's hard for everybody to get that exposure. So I guess social media and sharing it like we are now is, you know, one way to kind of get that across because it's hard to get everybody out in the farm and to let them see that firsthand, but it would be nice. Yeah, I mean, one thing, I guess, one thing that I find interesting, and, and maybe I don't know about this, but there seems to be not a lot of veterinarians that are vegan, vegan activists or anything like that. I mean, we see some physicians that do that that probably have never also spent much yeah. time around animals. But I mean, we, I guess because of sort of the vet, veterinarians, I would assume in the U.S., and I don't know what our training system's like here, because, you know, I mean, do all, is the primary curriculum of, of a veterinarian throughout Western world is it kind of, you kind of cover the basics of animal husbandry at some point and farm operations. Uh, and then you, then you specify, you know, if you're going to be a small vet, large, large animal vet, small animal vet. Uh, so, yeah. So it varies. Like my school was um, broad based, which was fine. I would have preferred a specialist because that's the person I am, but there's pros and cons. Davis is, um, is a very well-ranked veterinary school. I think it's the number one in the U S and they're very progressive in terms of adapting to the veterinary market. So they recognize that the veterinary job market requires more specialist positions. That's what's better for their graduates to be more specialized and more ready when they come out for the area they're interested in. So Davis offers tracking for the last two years of their four-year grad school. So it's first two years, it's kind of generic physiology, pathology, animal husbandry. So everybody will get an appreciation of how livestock is managed and then they will track and choose their area. And that's when they get into the nitty gritties of the clinical work and the real specifics. And I mean, I have friends who are veterinarians and some of them are vegetarian, some of them are not. And you're right. There's, I guess it's different to the human medicine world. Even though some of my friends are vegetarians who are still vets, they, because I guess of their veterinarian training and their understanding of husbandry, they're never like, Oh, I'm a vegetarian because I think this is wrong and horrific. Like they don't say that they don't know that they just do it because that's their preference. They're like, I don't like eating animals. I like animals too much. And when somebody gives me that as a reason for being vegetarian, I'm like, that's a great reason. Like if you just don't like eating animals, I don't have anything to argue against that. So I guess you're right. I, yeah. I see your point. Like in the veterinary world, you don't get, you don't get a lot of people condemning it because we realize there's not a lot to condemn. And like as a veterinarian, you have to understand that animals are animals and people are people. And when you're a veterinarian, you're primarily working with people. Like some people, if you think you're going to vet school to work with just animals because you don't like people and you're not a people person, you have chosen the wrong profession. Like you're working with people. And then by proxy, you get to work with their animals, which is the great part. You get to work with animals because of the people. But, um, oh God, what was I going to say? But, um, 
you know, we understand how animals are managed and how they, and you know, like euthanasia is a big part of my job. Like that's not a thing in human medicine. Like euthanasia is a large part of being a veterinarian, no matter what species you work on. And there is that recognition of like, these are animals, anthropomorphism, this whole putting a human perception, like perceiving an animal as if it was a human is a very negative thing. It's very bad for animals. Like if you do it to your dogs, it is one of the biggest drivers of animal behavior problems. Like a lot of dog behavior and cat behavior issues are because people don't recognize that a dog is a dog and a cat is a cat. If you treat a dog like a cat, you're going to mess up your dog. If you treat a dog like you would treat a human child, you're going to mess up your dog. And, you know, the species are different and like euthanasia and manage, like things like euthanasia and then managing them and using them to produce a product for people. I don't like, I don't see it as a bad thing. You know, I think we're giving them, we're appreciating their value. Like those beef cows, they're adding this massive value to the planet. You know, we should appreciate the fact that they are, you know, giving this to us. But... Padre, what's your favorite, what is your favorite part of doing what you do as far as interacting with, you know, or just in general? I mean, what, what, what really gives you joy about doing what, what you get to do every day? As a dairy vet, I guess um, seeing, seeing the dairies run well. You know, when you work with a client and you improve their conception and their reproduction and you, I guess one thing that I did, one like issue I worked with, with clients a while ago, with a client a while ago that I really appreciated was working at their calf unit where they rear their calves. And I did like a very holistic audit of everything they did. I went out there, you know, over and over again, over a space of time and like took samples of the milk they were feeding looked at the electrolyte they were using for dehydrated calves, looked at all the drugs they were using, like talked to everybody, took like, you know, noted on everything, compiled it into like presentations for them, drew up treatment protocols and worked with them, made recommendations and then helped them implement those recommendations. And then saw that the guys working on that dairy every day, like the guys feeding those calves and the guys treating those calves were like, Oh, you know, there's actually less diarrhea this week like these calves look better than they did six weeks ago. Like the new calves that have come in, they look like they're doing better than the ones that were here six weeks ago. And, you know, working with a client like that for the benefit of the system and for the benefit of the animal, I guess that's what I, I guess that's what I like about it the best. Let me, uh, I guess we should, I should have covered this earlier, but you know, we often hear, I mean, cause you work in dairy and, and one of the things we often hear is that dairy is, is rape of these cows because they are not willingly consented to being artificially inseminated. And, you know, again, I guess if you assume that you're going to get milk from these cows, you have to get it done some way. And so I know you talk about bullying injuries, but why, why, you know, tell me the difference between artificial insemination from the cow's perspective. I mean, not, not to be, it's obvious, but I mean, versus a natural, uh, you know, insemination by a bull. Is there any benefits to the cow for that? So biosecurity is a very big one. Like venereal diseases exist in cows and they're very, very significant. So biosecurity and the health of the cow is a big deal. Um, things like bullying injuries, yes, um, that happens. But then the safety of the staff, like I love cows and cows are lovely, wonderful, caring animals. But bulls are not always as friendly. And I was at a rodeo this weekend with bucking bulls and like bulls are not necessarily the safest animals to work with so a big driver i think initially before the improvement in like all of our technologies to get rid of bulls was for human safety and for the safety of the other animals um bulls can be very dangerous um 
then in terms of inseminating them, and yes, they need to get calves so they can produce milk and all that. I mean, you know, cows are cows. They, if they're in heat, they will breed each other. And I have done cesareans on, we call them teen pregnancies. It's usually the average age that a cow, like a dairy cow will calf at. And this is like children because of all this data around like when is the best time for a cow to calf in terms of all these outcomes. It's usually 24 months. I've done cesareans on heifers that are like 18 months of age. I did one very, like one that really stood out was that, like the calf was already dead before we began the operation, but we needed to get it out of this cow. But um, it was like a blonde Aquitaine, like a pedigree beef breed, um, very, very fancy, nice cows. But this guy and this farmer was like almost in tears because he knew it was his own fault that it had gotten to this point because a bull had broken into the field where the heifers were and had bred one of these heifers way, way, way too young, like way inappropriately. And this will happen. This is why we <laughs> control where our cows are because they will breed each other. And this calf, after we like, like cut it out, if it had stood, like if it had lived, it was, it was like almost half the size, half the size of the heifer. Like she had this thing was a monster, and teen preg, like well, not teen pregnancy, but you know, inappropriate breeding, and then inappropriate breeding of cows is a big deal because they are not going to choose who their sexual partner is. Like, you know, and like things like having to do cesareans and dystocia are negative welfare indicators like if you have to do a lot of cesarean sections on your farm or you have to assist with a lot of calvings that is a negative welfare outcome like 90 something percent of cows should calve unassisted and that's the best for their outcomes um and bull choice like the the you know the male partner has a massive impact on what comes out of the cow because of breed differences and genetic predispositions like some bulls and there's there's like massive genetic indexes for you know how to predict what bull is going to give what so like bulls have rankings for all these different things they have ease of calf ranking they have size of they have muscling of the hindquarters and muscling of the front so you can predict all of this stuff on like just a semen sample of like what your bull is gonna potentially give your cow so part of it is just being responsible like when i and i don't see it here in california because the level of control on semen choice and breeding is much more um intensive but in Ireland, where there was still more natural service and still more potentially inappropriate semen choice by maybe producers that aren't very experienced, I saw some farms and some dairies, and these are places that are like, you know, organic and not organic, but natural and lovely, and they breed naturally with massive high cesarean rates, which is not okay, and massive rates of intervention at calving, which is not okay. They're very negative outcomes. Um, so, you know, I think as a producer being responsible for your cows is a big thing because you know they're you know they're like they're like children you know they're not going to make responsible choices you have to do that for them and you have to make sure that they're at the appropriate age they're at the appropriate health status like you don't want to breed a cow that is not in good enough weight or condition and she's not going to be able to support that and it's going to be negative for her and then the process of artificial insemination like calling that rape i mean i spoke earlier about how we detect heat and we do it like around the time of ovulation not at the time of ovulation we do it at the time of heat expression. And then ovulation usually occurs so many hours later. So we put the semen in when we see heat being expressed. And I mean, I palpate cows, not now because I'm taking classes, but like I palpate cows every day, you know, like you manually introduce your hand into the rectum and you palpate the uterus and you take your hand out again. And that's very similar to how do we inseminate them. You rectally introduce your hand and then you will introduce a, like a clean like disinfected stilette into the uterus and when the cow is if you're doing it at the right time because you've detected the heat 
the cervix should be like relaxed enough that you can introduce the stilet through the cervix, introduce the semen. So it takes a couple of seconds and the cows really don't react <laughs> whatsoever. And you know, they're like, they're about to ovulate, like they're pulling, they're in heat. They, you know, it's kind of what they're expecting naturally as well. You know, that's, they're pretty okay with it. I wouldn't say that they're, they turn around and say that you just raped them. But um, I don't know, I guess some people are uncomfortable with the idea of us manipulating them rectally and manipulating them like you know through their cervix but that's the reality of how you do what's appropriate for your cow you have to you know you have to do those things for them but so you don't you don't have them sign a consent form or anything like that for you know, <laughs> before they do that hey what uh you know just as a as a sort of thought about what things do you think you'd like to see improved in and around the dairy industry or animal ag in general that frustrates you as far as you know could we do something better that that actually could happen if you you know if you could if you could snap your fingers and make something magically happen what would you do hmm. maybe that's a tough tough question i don't know i don't know enough about it i mean is there you know like recurrent problems that could be avoided or i mean yeah know, Probably good, like 10 things didn't pop into your head right away. <laughs> I mean, I came from a very small farm and like economics and agriculture. I mean, yeah, the immediate answer will be that the price of milk would go up because <laughs> if people are making, if people are more profitable, they have more money to reinvest in their farm. But I think, you know, and I'm a preventative medicine person. I think if I could snap my fingers and make things better, what I would do is improve infrastructure on facilities that have, like don't have the resource to have that infrastructure because in terms of preventative medicine and managing your cows, it like, you know, such a massive impact on that is like having that great, those great facilities and like the availability to do all of these things. And that's one of the things with small dairies because your margins are lower and your profits are lower. Um, it's just, it's just the reality of being in that business that, it's much more difficult for you to invest in innovations and improvements. And like I've worked in farmyards at home and not, not as much here, but like, you know, places that are old and not falling apart, but like, you know, they're not as well ventilated as they could be because they can't afford to rip out the roof and put in this new type of roof that's better at ventilating. So, you know, if, but I mean, that's a perfect world scenario, but I think things like the management around the animals and facilitating that would be the, I think the best driver of this animal welfare, like the more we can work with them and for them, the better. But that all costs money and that's part of why, you know, the less people want to pay for their beef and their milk, the harder that is to make happen for the animals. What do you see? What do you see the future of dairy? I mean, there's a lot of people that seen it's declined dramatically, uh, you know, in North America, I think, you know, over the last decade or so. I mean, where do you see dairy going over the next couple of decades? So, I mean, without being too technical, because the whole like milk markets across the world is a whole like economic field itself, but fluid milk consumption has decreased in this country and in every pretty much all these developed countries, fluid milk consumption has decreased. America has maintained its demand for dairy pretty much because of the increased demand for these solid milk products like cheeses, yogurts, ice cream, that rising demand and the kind of like more you know and as people as countries develop people's tastes and demands change so like as we get richer people want more cheeses um so that has maintained the dairy industry here other countries have had different fluxes like china has massively 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 
increase their demand for fluid milk. So that's a market that is very important to every dairy producer across the world. Everyone wants to know what's China going to do in terms of buying their milk powder. I think in terms of the animals, like there's all these different statistics or facts, but um, I mean like the dairy herd in California alone in the last 50 years, not hasn't had, but it's, I think it's now like, what is it? In Tulare County, I think there's 700,000 cows. In the whole of California, there's like one point something million. I forget the exact, but um, but you know, in the last 50 years, we've not have, but like reduced that number of cows by a massive amount because our cows are producing a lot more than what the cows before them did. So we have less cows with the same amount of milk, which is a great thing. But um, I don't see us pushing a lot more milk out of our cows. I don't think we're. I think we've kind of reached. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think we've kind of reached most of that genetic potential and the rest of the potential is going to come from increased efficiency of the management. So I think dairies are just going to have to get, are going to get maybe more automated and feedlot systems are going to get more automated and the, the kind of monitoring and the diagnostics will come in. And like you already spoke about the robotic milking parlors and stuff. And I think that level of like higher spec diagnostic and monitoring tools will advance. And like there's already research and really interesting things like people will put probes They'll introduce them orally and probes will sit in the cow's rumen and it's like real-time monitoring temperature, like pH, like all these different statistics and like pedometers are now really, really popular in cows in terms of like heat monitoring because they get more active when they're in heat, but also in terms of like illness, like cows will walk around less if they're beginning to develop, you know, if they're starting to get sick or they're starting to feel worse or they'll, they'll ruminate less. So people already are monitoring things like how often a cow ruminates and you can look at the data there. So I think, you know, and with our changing planet, like we have an increasing global population, so we're going to need more food for less space because people take up a lot of space. We're going to have less space for our animals. So I think it'll, it will just get more, yeah, it'll get more automated and it'll get more, well, high spec, I guess, but if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves. Obviously, there's a lot of competition for dairy by a lot of these plant-based milks and there's, you know, I know the beef industry is lobbying hard to prevent uh, these alternate beef products being named as burgers or, or, or being actually being allowed to be called meat. And so I, I think the dairy industry kind of let drop the ball on that one because you've got, you know, milk from coconuts and almonds and walnuts and oats. and Yeah, well, that's something they banned in France. You know, in France, you're not allowed to use the name milk if it's not cow milk any longer, but... That's something I don't think they're going to get introduced here because of the more the freer market system here. You can kind of call whatever you want, whatever you want. Yeah. So let me. Uh, so you're got you've got another year up in Davis, and then what what are your plans uh, long term as far as uh, you know after you finish up there? I have another two months in Davis, then I'll go back to Tulare, back to like primary dairy practice. And then that'll be, and then that year will be the end of my residency because that's my final clinical year. So then I'll be sitting boards to try and become like a dairy specialist. Um, and then after that, I would like to stay in California and keep working in dairy because, I mean, if you're into dairy and you're a dairy person and people never associate California with this, but like I grew up working with dairy. So to me, California was like the home of dairy cows. So it depends on what you're interested in. Other people think it's like Hollywood or it's Disney World. But um, yeah, if you have anything to do with dairy cows or agriculture, California is the place to be. <laughs> so I guess for the next immediate future, I would try and stay in California and take the, the qualifications I got from Davis and 
you know, try and, you know, keep working in that industry, whether it be in private practice or in another realm of it. But you know, that's something I haven't figured out yet. Yeah, I had no idea that California was the, you know, the, the mecca of dairy. So that's, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. that. So I would yep. have thought maybe Wisconsin, where Zach's from, the cheese capital of the U.S. Oh, I, I love Wisconsin begrudgingly gave that up a few years ago, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I love when people bring that up because they never expect California. But I mean, California is huge. We have so much space. Yeah. Because um, California produces like 25% of all the milk made in, Cal- in the U.S. And then, or is it 20, 20 to 25%? And then Tulare County, which is in the Central Valley, um, produces 20% of all the milk in California. So, there's, so that region of the world is the most efficient and most productive dairy producing region in the entire world. So California, in terms of dairy, is like the cutting edge of how to do it. And that's... Yeah, let me let me ask you kind of a somewhat unrelated question because I just thought about this because I get a lot of people asking me about this stuff. What are your thoughts on rare raw raw milk products versus pasteurized? Is that I don't even know what the status of that is in California. Is it legal or illegal in California? It was illegal, and I'm not a hundred percent sure. There was a change in how you can label it, and I've seen it in some stores. I've seen it in like these co-op stores, but then I don't know if that is a separate labeling because if it's a co-op, you can part own it or whatever. Um, I personally, well, not even personally, like professionally, would never recommend raw milk products. I mean, I work with cows every day and I love milk, but you know, there's it, there, there's potential for contamination. Like you wouldn't eat raw, like a lot of meat products you wouldn't eat raw because there's potential for contamination. And milk... I mean, like historically, we know it has transmitted tuberculosis. It has transmitted brucellosis. It has transmitted coxiella, like Q fever and coxiella. Um, it can transmit leptospirosis. Like there's a lot of infectious diseases that you can get from milk. And when I was growing up, we drank raw milk um, from our own little dairy. And then my mother started getting nervous because she was like learning as she like was more introduced to wider media, the risks associated with that. And she bought a home pasteurizer and started pasteurizing. Um, and then my mother had a lot of children. So then we were drinking too much milk. We were actually affecting the, the milk production of the farms. So we had to start buying our own milk. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I would never recommend it. It's, it's, a, it's an outbreak waiting to happen. And there has been documented cases. And I've looked and read some of these papers. There's been a couple high profile over the last couple of years. Some people got brucellosis which obviously can be a devastating disease for people from consuming raw milk from animals that were vaccinated against brucellosis. We have a legal requirement in California to vaccinate every female dairy animal for brucellosis. Even though the state is brucellosis free, there's potentials for, you know, like introduction either from Mexico, which is not free. It has an endemic brucellosis or from places like Yellowstone where the elk still carry brucellosis. So for anything like shipment or movement of animals in California, every female dairy animal has to be vaccinated. And it's done from the age of four to 12 months of age, um, which is much longer, like way before they ever become productive dairy animals. Um, so there's no risk because it's a live vaccine. Like, you know, you are introducing brucella type, you're introducing um, brucella bacteria, um, attenuated ones. But, um, you know, there's a risk to human health there, but we're doing it to animals that are nowhere near going into the milk, going into the food chain. And then we're also pasteurizing the milk. And there has been outbreaks in the US where people were consuming raw milk and got brucellosis because animals producing that milk were vaccinated for brucellosis. And this was coming from an organic raw milk farm. And it is illegal to vaccinate animals over the age of 12 months for brucellosis. 
So I really don't know what was going on there, but it was a very weird legal situation. One of the outbreaks was on a farm that was like a co-op owned farms. So instead of buying their milk, you would buy a share in a cow or buy a share of the farm. And then they would just like put the milk in their fridge and you could show up and like collect your milk from the fridge and go home with it. So they were never selling it because it was illegal to sell it. They were sharing it with their co-owners. And that was how a whole outbreak occurred. And I think, is it, was it the CDC or the pub, or maybe it was the state public health service went in to investigate this outbreak and they couldn't because this dairy wasn't selling because like, you know, there's a, there's this thing called the PMO, the pasteurized milk ordinance, which is the legal requirements for selling milk in the United States. And because they weren't selling any of their milk, none of these restrictions or laws apply to them. So the public health officers couldn't actually go on the farm and take samples. They had to request that the owner submit self submit samples and they did a brucellosis and it was a whole thing. So, I mean, I, it, I don't know, it scares me. As a veterinarian, it, <laughs> it's a scary area. Well, it's always interesting to hear that perspective from someone who's in the trenches, so to speak, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, sure. Thanks for sharing. <clears throat> yeah, that's, uh, it's, a very, it's a very interesting topic. And, and, and like I said, I always, I'm, I'm, I'm more often inclined to say I have no idea, particularly when I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much, Patrick. Let us know where we can find you so people can follow you. I know you've got an Instagram account. And I just looked at yours. You're swinging a mace just a oh, few yeah. minutes ago. So you're yeah. up there doing that, getting strong. Sure. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's my, I guess that's my main social media. It's page zero one or Padraig or whatever. But yeah, that's, I don't have a huge presence. That's kind of me. Well, awesome, Zach. Any last minute thoughts? Um, I think we're good. That was, that was an awesome episode thanks for coming on and giving us some time uh but yeah we'll we'll link your instagram account to the show notes and uh if you have anything else you want to share with that just send it over and we'll we'll okay. attach that to it too but sure well i'm glad you found it useful i wasn't sure how much help i could be but <laughs> <laughs> no it was great it was great you know we've got we've got enough episodes now where it's kind of cool to connect a lot of dots and okay. between you dr sarah place frank mitloner and alan savory and then the various ranchers we've had on it's uh it's kind of cool to have have that level of perspective for sure okay well i'm glad got something from it and thank you very much for inviting me on it was a fun experience all right something new it's different to presenting in front of a conference <laughs> yeah no it was a good time thank you so much take care hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.